Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Glad to have you all here. Let's Matthew chapter 14. Last week, we went over the account of what we call the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. And the occasion of this was that, as you know, uh, Jesus um, was looking for a place to get away. He was looking for a place by himself, a place that would um, be a bit desolate. And do you remember why he was looking for such a place? He had just been told that John the Baptist, his you know, relative, his colleague in the faith, someone that he was very close with, probably one of the few people that had even a glimpse of, of what Jesus was on the earth for, had been killed. And it says in verse 10 of chapter 14, Herod had sent, had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mother, verse 12, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. That was, that's what he was looking for. He was looking for a place to grieve. He had had horrible news. It was devastating news, and he just needed to get away. And I know probably many of you have felt some of that at some point in time. Just, uh, you know, just, I, gotta, I just got to tune out because I, I, can't, I need to deal with this a bit. Um, I read a, um, a fascinating book years ago. I, I may have mentioned it here before, but it's called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's written by an economics guy, and, and you know he's uh, brainier than me. But the point of the whole thing was that our brains are really limited with how much we can process at any given period of time. And I have experiences. I don't know if everyone else has, but you know sometimes you just want to just... There's just too much information. You just want to do this, right? You just you just want to close it all out. Well, there's an anatomic reason for that. Our brains really don't process a whole lot of things at the same time. Um, one or two things, maybe three or four things, something's going to get dropped. In fact, if you can try this with a friend sometime, you can just be walking with them and ask them, by the way, what's two times two? That answer is so deeply ingrained as we don't have to even think about it, it just pops out four. But if you're walking along and ask them, say I got a math problem for you, what's 13 times 34? What they're going to do is, the first thing they're going to do is actually stop walking. Even though you didn't tell them to, they're going to stop walking. And then they're going to do something like this. Right? They're going to just stop walking, and because why? Because literally, you, you, could, you could work the problem, right? You could probably do it in your head, but not and do something even as simple as walking at the same time. So 
you multiply that with all the emotion, everything that was going on, Jesus needed to get away. But something derailed him. Something made him stop that plan. So what, what stopped him? The crowd was there, part A of that answer, and he had compassion on the crowd, part B of that answer. He, he needed to get away. But as he saw the crowd that had gathered there, um, and he could see with those spiritual eyes the needs that they have, and the needs that they had, and, and the healing that they needed, and it said he had compassion on them and healed their sick. That stopped him from going on his appointed rounds. He had a spiritual detour. Then the disciples came to him with this problem of, hey, all these folks are hungry, it's kind of late in the day, and now he takes another detour. Because he could have done, as the disciples said, and sent the people away, so they could you know, just say, hey, show's over, folks, we're done, you guys go. But he took this second detour because he wanted to teach the disciples a lesson. That was the main reason. Now, there was benefit to the crowd as well, of course, but the main reason he took this second detour was so that he could, um, so that he could uh, teach the disciples uh, this lesson about who he was and, and, and the true bread of life and all that sort of stuff, okay? Then... Verse 21, and those who ate were 5,000 men besides the women and children. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So it wasn't like I'm going to feed them so that I can keep doing the healing, right? The show really was over. He could have dismissed the crowds, but he said, okay, and he fed the 5,000. And then as soon as that was over, all right, you guys get out of here. Whatever the Aramaic equivalent of that was, I think that's probably what he said. All right, guys, you guys get out of here. Um, get in the boat. Head, just get out of here. Um, when they see you leave, you know, it's like, you know, Elvis is leaving the building. Um, at least Elvis underlings are leaving the building. Um, and, and then it says, he dismissed the crowds. Verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Finally, finally he gets a chance to grieve and to pray, to recharge and to be alone. It says, when the evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Now, if you look back in verse 15, it says, now when it was evening. So between the evening of verse 15 and the evening of verse 20, 
three, 5,000 people have been fed, the scraps have been collected, the, uh, the people have been sent away, the disciples have been sent to the boat, he has now had time to pray, Apparently, and this was, was news to me, that the Jews recognized two evenings. There was an evening, which I guess was the start, that they recognized, which turned out to be around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I was like, so presumably that was the evening referenced in verse 15. But then there was a second evening, which was around sundown. So it says, when evening came, he was there alone. So presumably, he had had a few hours after the crowds had gone, after the guys had gotten into the boat, and he was there alone. But it says, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So, I think it's, I think it's helpful to think about this timetable a little bit because you can start to picture things a little bit more. So, um, so Jesus gets this news, must have been fairly early in the day when he heard about uh, John the Baptist's death. He goes and finds a place to get away. He heals the sick way past lunch. It's this, this first evening, it's 3 o'clock or so in the afternoon, um, the disciples come to him. They have to go and find out who's got anything. The boy has, you know, five loaves and two fishes. He feeds the 5,000. They pick up the scraps. Ultimately, he dismisses a crowd. The guys get in the boat. He has some time by himself. Well, even if it was like summer, like it is now, and if it was as late as it possibly could be, what's it get dark? 8.30? maybe on last night or tonight. I mean, maybe a little twilight. So, this is important because in verse 25 it says, and in the fourth watch of the night he came to them. So the fourth watch of the night starts around 3 o'clock in the morning. So let's say he dismissed the... um, disciples around dark let's say it takes them an hour or so to get their gear together and to push off in the boat let's say there's enough moonlight to get started they were mostly fishermen they were comfortable probably on the water at night they were probably within eyesight of the shore probably within a mile or two of the shore they were basically if you look at the map the sea of galilee they were basically going from around 1 o'clock over to, they wound up around 9 or 10 o'clock, kind of cut the, the top off the corner of the lake there. Um, that was their intention anyway. But, so you figure they get on the water no later than 9.30, and they're still on the boat, wind and ra- waves, at 3 o'clock in the morning. So they had been getting it for, what, four and a half, five hours, on what should have taken them about an hour and a half boat ride. Now, 
the pictures I've had, maybe you've got a little picture, my Bible has a little picture of what a Galilean fishing boat would have looked like. This was an artist's rendition of an actual boat that was found, that was around 2,000 years old, that was dug up in the Sea of Galilee, so this is probably a pretty good representation. My picture has that it did have a, a single square sail, so even if it was assisted by that, they probably had to have some oars as well. Um, they had been fighting this water for four or five hours. And here is 3 a.m. Who knows how many circles they did in the Sea of Galilee. Things were not going well for them. And in verse 25 it says, And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. Now that's a pretty good trick. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So, in my mind, as I'm trying to picture this happening, you don't have massive wind and waves and storm going up with a nice, clear, bright, full moon in the sky. Right? I'm picturing cloud cover. So the only way that they could have seen Jesus is through the occasional flash of lightning. It's the only way I can picture it. So can you picture this? Let's say some of them are rowing, so they're facing the shore where they left, right? Because you have your back to where you're going if you're rowing. And there's a flash of lightning, and some guy sees something, right? And... But there's wind and rain and there's water in his face and, you know, he didn't have this Gore-Tex on. And then another flash of lightning happens some random period of time later. And it's like he sees it again, but now it's closer. And this keeps happening until it's right near the boat. I'm getting chills scaring myself right now. I mean, that would be freaky. That would be... So when they said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear, that's not that hard to imagine. Verse 27, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, the disciples have already had some experience with Jesus' power over wind and waves, right? So they know he can be in charge. But everything's still going crazy. Every, the boat's still rocking, the wind's still windy, the waves are still wavy. Verse 28, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, what would you say to Peter? No, I know what you would really say. You would say, bless his heart. <laughs> oh, Peter. Um, now, think about it. Lord, if it's you, what if it wasn't? Right? So, I mean, if it's you, I mean, who else? I, anyway, I don't know. Think about that. If it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly how that went down, but that 
isn't it's still crazy on the boat. He doesn't have a U.S. Coast Guard approved life vest on. And yet he wants to get out of the boat. Crazy. He walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So you can picture uh, Peter. He's walking toward Jesus. He gets frightened some portion of the way there and starts to sink and, you know, is thinking, well, that went well. Calls out to Jesus. Interestingly, the disciples are watching all this. The boat's still crazy, and it's not until they get in the boat that everything gets back to normal. The wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The disciples had been with Jesus about two years, some people say, at this point. Now, Jesus has been with them, teaching with them, living with them. Back in the day, if you were following a rabbi, you were, you were literally following the rabbi. You went where he went and camped where he camped and listened where he listened and walked where he walked. Um, my buddy uh, Eric Kramer went on one of these... Uh, uh, it was like a Holy Land trip, but it was uh, with Ray Vanderland, and who tried tries to take a small group and to to give an experience similar to that. And Eric told me that it would not be uncommon that they would wake up, get to you know I guess they would you know drive to some jumping off point, and Ray wouldn't say anything. He would just get out of the bus and start walking. And he said, there was one day we walked for three hours and he never said a word. But it took him about three hours to get to the top of this hill. And then when they got to the top of the hill, he had the lesson. So that would have been kind of what the disciples went through. They were just used to following Jesus. But in all that time, Probably until this point, in fact, this, I think this is the first time where, where collectively they literally worshipped him as God. And they'd been with him for two years. We'll come back a little bit. Let's finish out the chapter. Verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick 
and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. This calls to mind you know, the healing of the woman, of course, that had the bleeding. Uh, several times we've talked about where Matthew will have these little summary statements, you know, basically to the equivalent of, and Jesus went around healing and so forth. So um, here was an entire day probably of, again, having compassion for the crowd, of meeting them, of, of healing them, um, and it's all distilled to a sentence or two. Uh, there were so many things that Jesus did. Uh, you can't help but wonder, you know, how many things just never made it into print. You know, I think one of the one of the things maybe, um, well, I mean, we deal with this today, right? I mean, uh, a few weeks ago, Dad came across some old family videos that not only had I never seen before, but a couple of the events that were in the videos, I don't remember ever happened. And, you know, when Ann and Max were little, and, and uh, some things that I, I just didn't even remember. Um, so there are obviously things that have happened in our lives that we don't have documentation of. Um, a generation or so from now there's going to be more documentation of life because people are posting about themselves daily and taking pictures and, you know, there was a day when, you know, a person might have only had, I mean, when photographs first started, you may have only had your photograph taken once in your lifetime in the early days, you know, back in the 17, 18, I guess, 1800s. Um, and now, you know, people are taking photographs all the time so who knows all the things that are written that happened to Jesus that weren't written about we can only imagine so what do we what do we make of this account does this have something to teach us and I, I think of course it does you know all scripture is useful but as I was thinking about this um you know, maybe for Jesus even, this wasn't necessarily a normal day. But if you kind of summarize it, it was something like this. Jesus woke up thinking, it's a good day. It wasn't long that his good day turned horrible because he got devastating news. And how often... Have you even started the day thinking it was going to be fine, and then it was just, here we go. Something's leaking, something's broke, something fell through, you know, it happens. Um, well, he tried to deal with it. Life intervened, as it often does. Somebody has demands on us that we didn't expect. Somebody wants something from us that we didn't know that, well, we didn't wake up expecting to have to deal with, but now we do. 
And, and we want to, you know, we want to, you know, do the duties that are before us just like Jesus did. And just when you feel like things are, are uh, picking up and then something else happens, you know, the disciples came to him with a program, or, or a problem rather, that they needed fixing. If you look at it from the disciples' standpoint, they had probably had a pretty good day too. When it's all said and done, they were probably thinking, you know, I'm kind of glad to be out of the crowds too. Yeah, let's, let's get in the boat. Let's, let's get out of here. Let's go make camp. Why did their good day go so bad? Why was that? We don't really know the why thing. But one thing um, I think they might have thought about down the road. And by the way, if you've ever been in a scary boat situation, you remember it. Yeah. Ever been in a scary boat situation? Yeah. It, it, tends to, it tends to stick in your mind a little bit, or a lot. Um, Hurricane Sandy, remember Hurricane Sandy? It so happened to be passing through the Caribbean the very first time that Merritt and I took a cruise. And there were 65-mile-an-hour winds um, on the deck of the boat. Thankfully, it was a very, very big boat. But, uh, but it was a little scary. I remember it, that's for sure. But they would have looked back or could have looked back and said, you know, even when things were crazy, it turned out okay because Jesus was there. And I think the, the little, the little take-home nugget for me from this lesson was when things are crazy around me, it's likely Jesus is already walking toward me even when I don't recognize him yet. Even when there's just a flash of lightning where I think maybe I see something that I'm not sure is Jesus, but he's still making his way toward me, even when I don't recognize it. There's a lesson about faith. You know, many people have commented on the fact that even though it didn't work out perfectly, at least Peter was willing to uh, test his faith a little and get out of the boat. Um, I remember the first time that was pointed out to me, I think probably in some youth retreat or something. It, um, but I was, yeah, go Peter. You know, and you, you have to, um, impulsiveness has its downside, but it has its good sides too. At least you wind up trying things that uh, other people probably don't. probably wrap up here I'm running sound in a minute but um, I think this is um, probably as Matthew is building this big arc and here we are we're all the way up to Matthew 15 and now they're worshiping Jesus now we've got what we're a little more than halfway but everything else is picking up the pace uh, there's 
you know, the bulk of the book, of course, is the last few weeks of his life and teachings. Here we have this little milepost. Truly, you are the Son of God. And remember, Matthew was writing for a reason. He was building a case. He was bringing others along who maybe hadn't experienced a story like he did. He wanted them to bring them to the same point of confidence that he had. Where they too, by this point in the book, could say truly he was the Son of God. Because the death and burial and resurrection that's going to happen, it doesn't mean anything if Jesus is just another rabbi. It only comes into focus when you realize that Jesus was the Son of God. So Matthew has put his stake in the ground and, and in essence, using the disciples' declaration as the high point to this point of his book, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Just like this particular day was like a roller coaster, when we pick up next week in chapter 15, verse 1 has a start. Then the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, here we go again. And we'll see oppositions building, in his face again, you know, and, and you can just, you know, there, no doubt there was a time when Jesus, in, in the coming weeks and months and so forth that he has, probably would have longed to go back to that hillside where he was just, just healing, just meeting with the people. But, of course... Uh, Life isn't like that all the time, right? Uh, it's not always, as they say, smooth sailing. All right, we better quit. Any comments? I just I have a little bit of a, a take on this passage for me. Yeah. Um, when when you first get saved, you're all in. Right. And when Jesus calls you, you go. Right. And then the storms come. Right. So all of us go through that, and even though we don't need saving of our souls again, we need Jesus every day to save us from these storms like he did Peter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's the way Absolutely. I right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, in case you haven't noticed, uh, Christians still need Jesus. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Pat. All right. Well, let's close. Father, we thank you that... You um, have given us your word. You've revealed this to us. You've given us the story and all the detail. We thank you for inspiring Matthew to write it and for all the different ways that you preserve Scripture to bring it to us. We thank you for that. We thank you that you are the Heavenly Father who is always wanting to give good gifts to us, that we can approach you with confidence and, and, and ask, and you'll give us what we need. We thank you for your son uh, through whom we can see someone who has compassion and care and uh, patience. And Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that uh, can use your words to bring us uh, closer and closer to the image of your son. We thank you that you're not through with any of us. We pray that you would grow our faith. We thank, pray that you would help us to see you uh, always coming toward us, always for us, 
always reaching out to us, always lifting us up, and always wanting to get us in a boat to carry us where we need to be. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.